are we having this sermon? Well, here it is. There are two viewpoints that are brought up by Catholic and Protestant sides. And what's disturbing to me is that they're both saying the same thing. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. That's from the number one selling systematic theology book that's used in all of our Bible colleges and seminaries, mostly across the board today. We also see that the Catholics have to say, the first of these is contrition of heart, uh, speaking of of areas of, of penance. Uh, which consists of sorrow for sin committed and the intention not to sin in the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to ask that question. How's that working out for you? Okay, because it's really asking a lot in that one thing. Now, this bothers me. Why? Because when I read the Bible and I come across the word repentance, I don't think it means what they're telling me. You ever ever seen Princess Bride? Inconceivable. Inconceivable. And finally he goes, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think that word means. You keep using that word. I don't think that repentance means what people keep telling us they think it means. I think the Bible, if we were just to handle it well and pay attention to everything that surrounds it, is going to with understanding it. Now, you're going to have these papers at the end of your uh, uh, seats here, okay, for you to mark on. I encourage you, put pen to paper, please. I encourage you to be invested in the text, especially if we're going to be looking at this again next week. I encourage you to take it home and to work on it. Ask questions. Send me emails if you got questions. Call me, text me, I don't care. My concern is that you're in the text and you're looking for God to teach you awesome stuff. Now they're at the end here. Hopefully you don't have a lazy person sitting on the end. If they fell asleep, nudge them and ask for a copy and send it down to you. Okay, that'd be good. But you also have within your handout, I believe, let me look real quick to make sure. Uh, We do. You have this blank notes page. And I just want to give you something quick. If this goes too fast for you, you can easily go back whenever we post it online. You can take a look at it. But this is just just trying to help being involved in the scriptures. There are four areas that we want to pay attention to when we study any passage. And I'm starting you with this because of how controversial this passage is for people. Okay. The number one place is the branches. It's the passage that you have in front of you. It's the text I've put on the paper for you so that you can mark it up, light it up, highlight it. Over here at Walmart, for $5, they have all different colors of these skinny little Sharpies. Man, I I love them. Can you tell? I love them. I'm just, I got them all laid out in front of me. I'm like, oh, for everybody in this, they're growing. I'm going to put this color in. They're meaning this. These are qualities. I'm going to do this. I love it. It's great. And it helps me keep my mind in order when I'm going through that. What are the branches? The branches is the passage at hand. Here's the question you're asking. What do I see? It's a simple observation. What's the subject at hand? Who is doing the speaking here? Sometimes, like if you're dealing with John, John may be the person who's the author of the book, but Jesus may be speaking to the Pharisees. That really makes a difference in how you understand something. Okay? How about what are the key words? You might want to highlight those, and those are the ones you pull up literal word. And you'd want to do a little bit of a word study. What could this word possibly mean? How is it being used in this situation? What is the train of thought? Can I follow what the author is telling me? As he's unfolding these verses, is that that making sense to me? You want to know that. Are there any references to the Old Testament? And also finally, is there a parable or a story or an illustration that goes along? That's looking at everything 
right up close, that's examining the branches, having it in your hand and pouring over it to make sure you can see all the details. The next is the trees. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to snow. Nobody else here? When you, hey, when you live in Indiana for 20 years and it never snows, you're looking forward to snow, okay? Indiana's like, I don't know, purgatory. But anyway, moving on. The trees. All my friends in Indiana, yes, I meant that. The trees. It's the immediate surroundings. What is the preceding context? What comes before it? What are the things that you read before your passage, your branch at hand, that travels into what you're looking for so that you get a good start coming into it? You've got to have previous information. How about where does it go after this? What's the proceeding context and how does the scene progress? What more information do I learn that helps me discern what the author means by the branch I have in my hand? Okay, now you, you probably won't get all these down. That's okay. We're going to work on it. Maybe I'll talk to Emily. We'll try to print up something snazzy and colorful. I don't know. The forest. This is the theme of the book. Why in the world did the Holy Spirit move the author to write this? Why did they even sit down and bother to put pen to paper? What is this book even about? What's the point? I love Jude. Jude's one chapter and he tells you up front. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, which is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But instead, I found a compulsion driving me to tell you that you need to earnestly contend for the faith. Talking about how you live in a sinful pagan world. I love that. That tells me straight up, here's what moved Jude to write. Man, that's easy. You mark that right out, you know it. Who's the book addressed to? Who's the recipients? There's a lot, a lot of difference between maybe what was going on in the book of Joshua for the application for us today, as opposed to what's going on in 1 Corinthians for the application today. One has the church in it, the other one does not. A lot, of, a lot of questions would be brought up there that we need to answer. What are the natural divisions of the book? When I'm reading along, instead of just looking, oh, well, here's a new chapter, and that's obviously a new part. That's not always the case. They often make the joke that the guy in the 16th century who put the chapter and verse numbers in there, he was on horseback while he was doing it because some of the verses are just janky and strange. Why did they, they do a chapter break there? Remember, when the original people got the letters, it was all reading in one long form. How about when was the book written? Knowing that's really important. Does it make it a make it make a difference if you were to read a book that was after the resurrection as opposed to before the resurrection? Yeah, there's a lot going on there that's different that we at least need to be aware of. Yes, ma'am. Go for it, Lily. Ah, how do you know who it's addressed to if it's not a letter? So if the whole thing is a narrative, you can usually find out if you if you if you search 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 you will by and large find out. It's interesting. Like for instance, Matthew. Matthew doesn't ever say to these people. He never does that. But when you look at all of Matthew as it's spread out, you find that it's heavy in Old Testament references, that he's writing about the nature of the kingdom. It's brought up ridiculous amount of times in that book. So you see what's most concerning of his heart. And he's chronicling the life of Jesus all the way up to the death and resurrection. Pretty important stuff, yes? So who is he writing to? Well, I'm going to guess that he's writing to Jewish Christians. And if he's talking all about the kingdom, he's probably unfolding for them the reason why the kingdom is not here now. That's what I see when I go through that. Now, you go home, read Matthew. If you read it out loud, it takes you two hours and 15 minutes. Okay. I've walked around and done that. It's pretty interesting. And especially if you can do character voices, it's super helpful. Okay. Do whatever it takes to get the scriptures, get your hands around the scriptures. And Jesus said, you know, go for it. That's great. 
But I would say deducing, that's what it's about. Some people say, well, it's written to Jews who are lost to let them know about their coming Messiah. That's possible, but there's a lot of application in there, and it's the only gospel that ever brings up the word church at all. So we have to take those things into consideration. We also have to take into consideration things like that, that everybody who wrote the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were all writing about history past as part of the church. So they're already part of the church. Acts 2 has already happened, and they're looking back on that time. That's very important stuff to look at. We have to consider all these things. Understand, I'm not saying that Bible study is quick. Okay? I think that's important. Just tell me what I need to know, preacher. My answer will be no. Why? Because if I give you the answer, it won't take root in you. It may have caused you to think a certain way, but your heart is the same. And that's not what we want. We want conviction springing from a study of the Word of God that says, I cannot continue on this way. I cannot continue to make this decision. I cannot be living as I am living because God's truth has now infiltrated my being and I've got to be a different person because God has called me to so much more. That's the purpose in Bible study. Also asking, what is the cultural climate? Man, it really helps to know that Rome was over everything in Jesus' time. Yeah? Yeah? Man, it really helps to know what was going on in David's time as he ascended the throne and all the prosperity that was coming his way and all the different things that he did that were so pleasing and demonstrated his love to God. Those are important things to know. But there's another part as well, and we couldn't figure out a good word for this. Art and Zach and I kind of threw it around. This is what we came up with. The expanse, the whole of Scripture. There is not one part of Scripture anywhere that is isolated in, of, and among itself. It is all part of a cohesive whole. And this is why we believe in what is called the inerrancy of Scripture. We actually claim at this church and stake it because it's been proven true that the Bible is without error. It has no falsehood in it whatsoever. And God has breathed every single bit of it from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the last period that stands there in Revelation. All the way across the board, equally inspired, not one more than another in any way. It is all God's word. And if it's all God's word and God is true and consistent in who he is, then that means his word and everything he wants us to know is true and consistent when we go through and we study it. It is infallible. So in that, in that understanding, is there a cross-reference? Sometimes the translators put in and say, you know what, you could refer to this because this is what they're talking about in the Old Testament. Man, that's really helpful. How about is there a reference to other personalities or themes? We're going to see a little bit of that today. Is there a type and a type situation? I'm going to explain that next week. Don't get hung up on that, okay? And how does Scripture interpret Scripture? Where else does the Bible speak to this matter to where it will help give me a full understanding so that I'm not just kind of throwing darts in the dark? I want to have an understanding of that. So, repentance in the epistle, the word epistle just means letter, to the Hebrews, okay? Here we go. We're looking at the branches. This is what we've got right up front with us, okay? Here we go. Therefore, now immediately, what's therefore, therefore? Man, you guys are smart hermeneutes. I love it. Like, what did he just call me? I'm out of here. Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. Therefore is referring to something previous. So I give it a heavy underline and I kick an arrow back to remind me what came before this, what came before this, what came before this, because usually when you're dealing with a for, it's a train of thought that's progressing. When you deal with a therefore, it's kind of like a little punch in the throat. 
need to pay attention to this because this is an important reason of why we're moving on in our thought. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Well, that sounds, why would we want to leave the elementary teaching about Christ? What did he do wrong? Why would we want to leave that? Anybody want to leave the elementary teaching of Christ? This is actually what the author is encouraging here. The fact that we need to leave it. Leave the elementary teaching. It's funny, if you look up this word right here, elementary, you get the idea of, you just, literal word, bring it up, beginning or even first. It's a Greek word, arche. First or beginning. Teaching there is a word that you're probably familiar with, logos. And it means word, leaving the beginning words. Leaving the beginning words about the Christ. He is the Messiah. It's very important. Let us, everybody see this here? The author is including himself. It's not just y'all, it's me too, okay? Now, I like to write something in there that helps me. I write P-I-P, PIP. And the reason why I do that is because it stands for a personal inclusive pronoun. It's a personal pronoun that he's using, but he's including himself with his audience. Man, that clears up a lot of problems with people. Because we love it when we hear people go, well, y'all's problem is this. Well, yeah, y'all's problem is that. We love when you're calling people out. But when somebody says, no, what's going on applies to everyone involved. Oh, well, that's a whole different thing. That's a whole different scale. And what it does is it eliminates a lot of hierarchy idea within the church and has a unified whole across it. So let us, here it is, press on to maturity. Now, does everybody see the contrast? Where's the contrast at here? I told you, you came to study. This is grace. We'll be gracious with you. Bible, we're all about the Bible. Church, unified. What is the contrast? Elementary principles, no. Leaving and what? And pressing on. Notice, leaving. I don't know how we'll do this. I'll tell you what. We'll say, got to go. There we go, right? Pressing on. Forward. That's where we're going. And notice, everybody see this? This is where the author is sending us, which is the goal. Maturity is the goal. Growing up in the faith is the goal. Growing up in Christ is the goal. But you've got to leave some things behind so that you can press on forward. Now, this interesting word here for the word goal, again, literal word, hold your finger on it, boop, pops right up. What is it? It's this idea that comes from a word, teleos. And you see it all throughout the scripture about a process coming to completion. It's the idea of reaching a finish line, or there was a goal that was attained that was set out ahead of you. So it's about your life coming to fruition where it ought to be. Every believer in Christ ought to be mature. Yes? Yes? How many of you ever dealt with a baby Christian before? They're fun. And then they slobber all over themselves, right? They're fun. And then they threw their food at you. Yes? They're fun. And then you had to change their diaper. Yes. That's how it happens. The Bible uses that imagery on purpose. Do you get mad at the infant? No, no. But what needs to happen? Maturity needs to take place. Maturity, we need to move 
forward. Now, this is very interesting here because this is our goal of where we need to go. Now, he gives us a prohibitive point. Not laying again a foundation. Stop there. Can you put a foundation on top of a foundation? Kenny, can you do that? Kenny pours concrete. Kenny, have you ever laid two foundations on top of one another? Not really. <laughs> Kenny's glad to be here this morning. Praise God. Not really. No, why? If you lay a second foundation on top of the first one, what happens to the first one? It's compromised. And now you've got a problem. Now you've got a problem with your bottom foundation. So notice what he's saying here. We've got to leave behind these beginning words about Christ, about the Messiah. And we need to move on to maturity. But in doing so, we can't lay a second foundation. There's only one foundation that we can lay. Now notice, what is the foundation, okay? There can only be one. He is going to give us what are some basic, or we'd say this, the beginning words that every believer should understand in order to move forward from that, okay? Watch this. Number one, of repentance, here's our word, from dead works, and faith toward God. Now, this is incredibly interesting. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. What does the word repentance mean? To change your mind. You sure it's not an emotional sorrow over sin and a promise and commitment never to do it again? Clinging to Christ is your only hope? Well, would that definition make sense here in this context? It would not. Dealing with the idea of dead works. So, what is this? Repentance from dead works. What, what are dead works? What's the word dead mean? Separated. It never means ceasing to be. It's the idea of being separated. Dead works, we need to repent of that. Repentance of dead works. I need to have my mind changed about works that are separated. Separated from what? Sin? No. Christ. Let me ask you a question. Can you do good things? As a Christian, can you do good things? Are all your works done with the idea of glorifying God as the end? No, they're not. So are they really good works? What if you did good works? You're like, I'm going to make that person a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because I know they'll give me $10. Pretty good sandwich, huh? What's their name? Exactly. Can I have the address on that one? How do I get to their house? Exactly. But it's very selfish motive, isn't it? Who's motivating you at that point? You? The flesh. The flesh is the motivator. And fleshly works are dead before God. They don't even matter. They don't count for anything. You will have no brownie points before the Lord for works that are done in the flesh. However, notice that the transition, or sorry, the flip of this is faith towards God. What about if you did works in faith? In fact, aren't we told that everything that is, done, that is not done by faith is sin? Yes? Yes, the only thing that matters, Paul tells us in Galatians, is faith working through love. Those are works that count. However, dead works do not count. Now, when I went into this and was looking at it, I had to ask myself some questions about, well, what in the world 
does that this mean? We've all we've all read James, right? Faith without works is dead. Think of it this way: works without faith is dead. Yes? Yeah. If your works are done for selfish, fleshly means, then you either did them in order to encourage yourself because of selfish, lustful benefit, or you are actually playing in Satan's corner and didn't know it. There is no fence, guys. It's either the devil or the Lord. And the world belongs to the evil one, period. So it's important that we get that clear-cut thing. So what I wrote down here, works done apart from faith, works without faith are dead. The mind needs to be changed about faithless works being a good option for the believer. It would be better to not work than to work forward in the flesh. But until your mind is changed about that, it won't happen. Now, notice what's interesting about this. This isn't talking about anything to do with conversion. It isn't talking about go to heaven when you die. None of that stuff. He's saying believers need to have their mind changed about how they do works. And if you're doing works without faith, it's wrong. It's sin. So notice the next part here. And faith towards God. So I went through and did some research. Trusting what God has said about a matter. Everybody, when you read in Romans, the just will live by what? Faith, how you live. Notice it's just not the just will get saved by faith. They're not just when they believe it. It's the idea of how you live your life. Do you live your life by faith? Do you live your life in a moment-by-moment trusting relationship with God? Everything that you will ever deal with in life, that I ever deal with in life, is either spoken of or referred to in detail or in principle in the Word of God. Now, somebody told me today, I don't remember who it was. They said that that a politician stood up and said, I just want to tell everybody what Jesus said about gay marriage. And he stood quiet for 30 minutes. And he said, I'm done. Or 30 seconds. He said, I'm done. And he walked away. Now, here's the thing. Did Jesus speak specifically to gay marriage in his earthly life? No, he didn't. He did not. Does the Bible speak to gay marriage? It does. Speaks all kinds of stuff. So what I learned from this man is he's got a major flaw. Number one, he doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is God. That's the problem. He thinks that only in Jesus' earthly life is when Jesus spoke, and so therefore that must be the only time that matters, or that Jesus is elevated above everything else that that God says. If God inspired all the word, that can't be true. And if Jesus Christ is God, you're nothing but wrong. Everybody see how that works? So notice, there's a big problem there with how people even initially think about those situations. No, what has God said about a matter? And if God has said it either in detail or in principle, do I believe what God has said about that matter? How will I proceed forward in my life? Will I operate from faith, believing what God has said in his word? Or will I operate by some other facade that I've put forward? Some other idea? Somebody else has got a lot of comments they want to make about life and how I should live it. This is all reason why they print horoscopes in our papers. Is because they want to sway you in a certain direction to live your life in a way. And I promise you this, it's always godless. It's always godless. Now, these first two things here actually set up a category. We might actually want to say that these are category A, maybe. Repentance from dead works. If it's not by faith, it doesn't matter. So I need my mind changed about that. And notice, believing what God has said so that I can move forward. Then there's a second group here. Of instructions about washings. There's number three. And the laying on of hands, number four, 
good googly moogly. There's a lot of weird things there, isn't there? In fact, if you look at this word, again, pop-up literal word, you actually find that it's the Greek word where we get baptism from. Is water baptism the only type of baptism that's in Scripture? No, in fact, it's probably the least talked about baptism in Scripture, if you want to be honest about it. So anybody that's coming to the table saying, well, baptism is so important, you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. Number one, that's a work. Number two, the Bible doesn't talk that much about it. It doesn't put that much stock in that point. When Jesus was baptized, was he baptized in a, in a church baptism or John the Baptist baptism? See, that's a whole other world, isn't it? There's a whole lot that happens in the earthly ministry of Jesus, his betrayal, death, resurrection, ascension. that goes on before the church even starts. Well, back here is where he got baptized, not up here. Different from how we do it now. So a lot of questions we have to ask. What in the world does it mean instruction about washings? What does baptize symbolize? Does anybody know? What's the whole point of why we do it? We're getting ready to go out to Silver Lake. I think we got nine people signed up to baptize. Anybody here looking to get baptized that hadn't been? Maybe you did and you didn't think it took the first time. You need to really understand it has nothing to do with your salvation. Hey, man, I've been baptized four times. Don't, don't play. I have been. Not proud of it, but good grief. That's just how much I didn't know. I think so. I think I'm good now. I passed through the waters, whatever. Baptism is all about identification. It's all about identification. That's what it has to do with. Instructions about identification. When you look at something like Romans chapter 6, and you see that it's the whole idea that Jesus has already died, and when he died, you died with him, and when he raised, you raised with him to a newness of life, and that what he offers, it's because you are identified with this death and burial and resurrection, and that is to be an antidote for how we utilize our spirit-filled bodies against sin now. It doesn't have anything to do with if we get water on you, you're better than you were. Nothing. has nothing to do with that. Back in first century times, if we did some cultural studies on that about baptism and you find out that somebody had a cloth, and let's say that it was a white cloth and it was a seamstress that wanted to sell something at the market, the way that she automatically upped her value was she took that white cloth and she got it in some purple dye and she got it covered in the purple dye, pulled it out, let it dry, and guess what? Her margin just went up for profit just by dyeing it. Why? Because purple was considered a royal pleasant, desirable color, and now it was more identified with what was going to bring more money. Same cloth. Same cloth. Everybody know that your insurance company charges you more if you drive a red car than anything else? What if I got it in white? You would have had a cheaper bill. Same car, but there's something about it that identifies it differently. Does everybody see that? It's the same idea with this. The idea about washings, it's identification truths. It's the idea of baptism. When Jesus says to John and James when their mom comes and says, can they sit with you in the kingdom? He said, you don't have a clue what you're asking. Are they willing to be baptized in the baptism with which I am going to be baptized with? Now, it's already passed John the Baptist's baptism. He's talking about the death he was going to suffer. Are they willing to go to death over this? Is that where they're willing to go? Notice that he uses baptism as a picture. He's going to be fully immersed. He's going to be fully identified with death. That's what it's moving for. How about the laying on of hands? Man, you search the New Testament about laying on of hands. See, it's weird because we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know. So there's no other book to compare it to. The laying on of hands. Is that spooky? 
Well, sometimes it's in the imparting of the Holy Spirit. We see some of that in Acts, but not a lot. One of the big ones we see is, and they laid hands on him and threw him into prison. You think that's what they're talking about here? Let's hope not, right? Like, yeah, we need to move on past that elementary teaching on a maturity. Let's get out of prison. We don't want to do that. The laying on of hands. But laying on of hands was also done, Acts chapter 13, in commissioning people for ministry. The Timothy had hands laid on him by the elders of the church there in order to commission him to be involved in ministry. So what do we understand about these two things putting forward? Well, number three, here are baptism. Baptism concerned with identification and being knowing, knowledgeable of the identification truths. Who you are in Christ, how you're identified with him. Because I tell you this, you get a hold with how you have been baptized into Christ and you will find sin exceedingly displeasing to your participation. I promise you that. Identification truths with Jesus make all the difference in the world in the life of the believer. Number four here, what is it for laying on of hands? Commissioning of ministry. Laying on hands can be seen as healing, receiving the Spirit, or the ministry of commissioning, but here's the thing. Everybody has a calling, and that's how I think it's getting at. I think it's the fact that every believer in Jesus Christ in here has a calling to do something. God didn't have us to be born, come in contact with the gospel, us be enlightened by the hearing of it and believing in faith, and then say, I just want you to sit there until eternity begins. God has something supernatural for every single believer to do. This is the reason why we harped on this. Spiritual gifts. Why? Because you need your spiritual gifts in order to do the spiritual work that God has commissioned you to do. Nobody's excited about that. Preacher, how come you always want me doing stuff? Because if not, you become a critchety Christian. Anybody hung out with a critchety Christian? Anybody? What is that? Somebody buy Jay a mirror. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. I, that, you know what? That's absolutely not true. Jay has the most pure servant heart of, of, of people I've ever come in contact with. He's always coming up to me, how can I help? Was this okay that this happened? Was it okay that... You can't ask for anything better than that. Lord, what do you want me to do? And I think, yes, thank you, Jay. And that's what it goes to. The laying on of hands, commissioning. For ministry. Every single person has been given something to do. This makes up section B. So notice what we've covered so far. Back up and think about it for just a second, okay? The very first thing we've seen is repentance from dead's work, dead works. I need to come to a realization in my mind. I need to become wise again to think differently, to come to my senses about the fact that my flesh will accomplish nothing for Jesus ever. It all has to be done by the Spirit. It all has to be done by faith. Anytime that I've got a good idea about what I could do for Jesus, the greatest thing I could do for the kingdom is sit down. Okay, that's it. Notice these are all elementary truths, beginning truths. How to serve him. So flesh has got to go. Number two, I got to do everything with faith in God. What has he said? And that's what I do, period. Those are the two steps of it. I find out what God said about a subject, and then I decide whether or not I'm going to follow that or not, whether or not I'm going to uphold that or not, whether I'm going to repeat that or not. That's your choice of how you're going to do that. Now, if that's the case, you then move into the situation about identification. How am I identified with Christ? How have I been immersed in him, dipped in him, dunked in him? It's talking way more spiritual than it ever is water. Please understand that. And the last one here that we just looked at, the laying on of hands. What does God want me to do? Does everybody see how these are elementary truths that you come to? This is how you get a believer started right. 
Get them started off in understanding these basic things about how to serve the Lord faithfully. Now we have a C division here. Notice number five, the resurrection of the dead. And number six is eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead. We know this for us in the church age is this. Rapture. That's what we're looking forward to. Tell you what, man, the Christians have gone crazy on Twitter. I've seen so many rapture memes over the past two weeks, I can't even tell you. They're like, get us out of here. Come, Lord Jesus. It's like pictures of Jesus reaching down out of heaven to get people and all that. I'm like, rapture going to be snatched up in a twinkling eye. But whatever, if it makes you feel good, if it encourages you, fantastic, whatever. The rapture. But there's also other resurrections of the dead. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints who are martyred during that time. They will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ sets up the millennial kingdom. So that's when they're going to happen. But also, after the thousand-year reign of Christ is over, there is a resurrection of the dead. Those who never believed in Christ, those who never responded in faith to God, and they will await judgment for the lake of fire. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So notice you have all that stuff. Old Testament saints, trib saints, And you could, if you wanted to rhyme it, the ain'ts, I guess, right? Unsaved. Great white throne judgment's going to happen. Notice, so that's another basic beginning word that we need to understand are those things. Why? Because that's the hope out ahead, is it not? If you're not living with the end in mind, what are you doing? We're just looking out for number one, right? And number one usually ain't Jesus in that situation. Notice, the eternal judgment. What is the eternal judgment? Well, we have the Bema. Which is rewards? Well, the Bema, which is rewards for believers. And then you have the great white throne, which is rewards, if we want to put it that way, for unbelievers. But here's the interesting thing both of these judgments happen according to works because you find that for the unsaved of the great white throne judgment there's a book open which is the book of life and then there are books that were opened and every single person who is unsaved is judged according to what they had done while in their body did they do anything of merit in order to pardon them from this opportunity how much of the gospel did they know jesus christ will graciously and exactingly judge that situation also for believers how did you live your life now that you're a believer in christ do all these other things beforehand will lead to a good showing at the judgment seat of christ well if i if i don't get any rewards does that mean i'm going to hell no that issue's been settled on earth if you believed in christ that's the grace portion of your life that's taken place now becomes a question now that you are a new believer in christ how do you live do you live by faith or do you persist in the flesh are you bound up in sinful habits and that's all you care about? And you're never looking for the Lord to rescue you. That's trouble. We're going to deal more with that later. So notice these are three sections, six things that you have going on here that are all considered elementary beginning words. Now, we're only two verses into our main passage. It's probably going to be three Sundays, actually. Now, here's an interesting word. And I'm going to read this. We're going to look at it for a second. I'm going to read the rest to you of the branch section, what we've got right in front of us, what, what I want you guys to focus on. Take these papers home. 
mull over them. When you come back next week, if you spent time with it, you'll be able to recall it in your mind and follow along perfectly. But I want to get everybody invested in this passage because people have considered it so cantankerous over, over the years of the church, okay? Interesting verse. And this we will do if God permits. This. Connected to the context. Maturity. Isn't that the call? Leave the beginning words behind. Press on to maturity. Can't lay a foundation again of these six things. These are all elementary foundational things that we ought to know because all doctrines spring out of them, maturing us forward. But look what it says. This we will do if God permits. In other words, we will press on to maturity if God allows it to be so. Now here is the question that's probably flashing in your mind right now. Why would God not want a believer press on I mean isn't that what the text is actually saying don't answer it now because I'm going to go into because I want you to spend a week thinking about it praying about it working on it asking the Holy Spirit who has been promised to lead us into all truth to minister to your heart and mind about why this may be and I will go ahead and give you you know the key to the scooby-doo crap crap door <laughs> trap door sorry didn't mean to say that trap door can't say that in church. Thank God this is Grace Bible Church. All right. The passage gives you the answer. How do we know that? Look at this. See that? Right there it is. Four. Remember, four is the what? You might remember the name? Causal conjunction, which means that there is a statement that has just been made to where the author feels necessary to elaborate. He's put something out there, and we're looking at that, and we're going, yeah, yeah, press on, that'd be good. Yeah, I want to know about all this stuff. Let's move forward, let's move forward. God might not let me. Why? Well, let me tell you why. Four, here's the explanation. That's for you to work with this week, okay? You say, well, this sermon's terrible. You don't really have any application. Guilty as charged, I don't. I don't. But if you will just stick with me and we can work through this in our time, week for week, because I want to be respectful of everybody's time and try to get us out here at a decent time. If you will just stick with me and work through this, I believe that you will come to the end of this on your own and say, I don't have any problem with what Hebrews 6 tells me. It's serious. It's true. But I can understand it just fine. I think that's a good place for Christians to be. Yes, ma'am. Just for you. Yes, ma'am. And again, if anybody has any questions during this time, raise your hand. Let's answer them. Let's ask them. You might be asking a question that other people are, are maybe nervous about raising their hand and asking. That's great. You got thoughts about it? Now, here's the thing. Do not email me and say, here's the answer to the question. Don't do that, okay? You're, you're taking the short road. Don't do that. I want you to spend time with it. You have to spend time with the text. 
or it will never make sense. You have to spend time with the text, okay? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for being a merciful and awesome God to us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us brains to comprehend the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us the indwelling Spirit who leads us into all truth, who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, who has sealed us for the day of redemption. How lost we would be without you initiating this opportunity and relationship with us. Thank you, God, that you are worthy to be praised. Please give us minds to read and comprehend. Give us good reading skills, and may we be reliant and prayerful and humble before the text for the Spirit to lead us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.